Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Today's episode of Hang Up and Listen is supported by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 2nd, 2016. On today's show, Tommy Craggs of Slate.com will join us to talk about the strangest NFL draft night ever in which Laramie Tunsil's stock tumbled after someone leaked a video of him smoking weed via a gas mask. We'll also be joined by Rob Tanner of the Leicester Mercury to discuss the English soccer club Leicester City's near clinching of the Premier League title, the biggest underdog story in the history of sports, 5,000 to 1 odds. And finally, Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller will be here to discuss their new book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, about how a couple of smart internet sports writers named Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller took over an indie league baseball team and implemented a bunch of statistical mumbo-jumbo. Stefan Fatsis is out this week, but with me from New York is Mike Pesca, a man who has another podcast. It's called The Gist. He's one of leading uh, – uh, what, what am I trying to say? Something about mumbo-jumbo. It sounded like you were almost saying the word genital. <laughs> Did you see A-Rod rubbing the bat against his genitals last night? <laughs> <laughs> he can't help it, given the surface area of his genitals. You know, on The Gist today, we have uh, Buzz Aldrin – Guess what sport he excelled at in high school? Not golf. And at West Point. Uh, I'll give you a hint. If he rubbed the implement against his <laughs> genitals, that would be quite a thing. Riflery. No. Fencing. <laughs> pole vaulting. Wow. We don't think of our astronauts as pole vaulters, do we? They, they reach great heights, Mike. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. great. And then after he became a... Astronaut famous for walking on the moon. He still kept at it, but this time tagged every successful vault with the phrase, the eagle has landed. <laughs>
On uh, Slate Plus this week, we're going to answer a listener question. It's going to be about naming rights to stadiums. How should we deal with that in the media? And if you want to listen to that, you should sign up for Slate Plus. You get a two-week free trial. You get to hear bonus segments on Hang Up and Listen. It's a good deal. Uh, Slate.com slash Hang Up Plus. Just a few minutes before the start of this year's NFL draft, the Twitter account of an offensive lineman from Ole Miss named Laramie Tunsil got hacked. And it wasn't one of those fake hackings where the guy claims his account got hacked. But in reality, he just tweeted out a picture of himself rubbing a bat against his genitals or something by mistake. No, this was a real hack. And the hacker posted a video of Tunsil with a gas mask strapped over his face. And that gas mask attached to a bong. And that bong and the gas mask uh, full of weed smoke. Tunsil was projected to be the first offensive tackle taken maybe at number three behind the two quarterbacks, Goff and uh, Carson Wentz. He sat there with his suit on. He was waiting to see what would happen. And then the pundits on ESPN and NFL Network talked about what they had seen and what they had uh, heard. First, let's listen to John Gruden of ESPN. He took this as an occasion to launch a broadside against the way we live now. This whole thing makes me sick. This whole social media scene makes me sick. If you're a young kid out there, put away your Twitter accounts. All right, if you want to be a pro football player, somebody's going to hack your account. Somebody's going to cause some problems. You got to be a reliable person to stand up here on the stage and be a first-round draft choice. That what, that's what's plagued this kid since he's been at Ole Miss. He's been injured. He's been suspended. And he's had a lot of traits that show you why you wouldn't want to draft him. So... This is embarrassing. I'm sure it hurts him a lot. And if I'm a head coach with my GM, I'm going someplace else. A miasma of incoherence there out of John Gruden. You got to blame the victim. And this is the National Football League. You got to have character to stand up here, cut to Johnny Manziel. (laughs) Let's listen to Mike Mayock now. He was on the NFL Network. He contrasted Tunsil's situation with that of UCLA linebacker Miles Jack, whose stock fell due to injury. Some people might empathize with Laramie Tunsil because apparently somebody hijacked their account and put it out there. However, to me, that's self-inflicted. Okay, the the guy was doing something he shouldn't be doing. He was photographed doing it. He's smoking pot through a, a gas mask. And at this point, I've got a ton of empathy for Jack and none for Tunsil. So this was uh, an actual thing that happened. We were watching this happen. This is not a dream. These people were talking about this thing on television. Uh, We're joined now by Slate politics editor and published writer, Tommy Craggs. Hello, Tommy. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Uh, So uh, Tunsil eventually went to the Dolphins with the 13th pick in the first round. Later in the evening, his Instagram got hacked with an as-yet-unidentified someone posting screenshots of text exchanges between Tunsil and the Ole Miss Athletic Department with Tunsil asking for money for his mom's light and water bills. Later, he Tunsil denied taking the money when he was at Ole Miss, uh, but then he admitted it about two minutes later. It seemed like this was a great purging of all things NCAA and pro football, that everything was kind of going out in the open. The helmet was overturned, and we got to see what was underneath. What did you make of uh, of this experience, Tommy? Uh, it was an incredible two hours where, yeah, it really did feel like every possible panic related to college athletes was sort of thrust in front of us. And we watched, we got to watch uh, like NFL people, NFL media types 
reckon with this in real time. Uh, and I think you made the point the other day that this is like these people sort of revealed their true colors uh, in the heat of the moment. Um, media people um, and Tunsil himself, who I thought handled those first few hours uh, about as well as anybody could have. Um, well, t- Mike, there was kind of this interesting conversation. This was all about PR. That's what Tommy wrote in his piece, where some people like Todd McShay, there was a columnist, Tommy, you sent this to me in the Miami paper, who thought that Tunsil's big mistake was admitting that he had taken money, that actually telling the truth about this was really like a huge problem and was revelatory of his character in a negative way. Like, how did how did you feel about that? I thought that, well, Tommy says he handled it as best he could have, I guess, given his resources. This guy was a victim. He was clearly the victim. And he he didn't put forward any intellectual arguments. He didn't call, say, guys, I, what are you doing to me? This is my privacy that's being violated. This is someone out to get me on the spiel on Friday. I likened it to uh, the Sony hacks and when all those actresses' naked pictures were out there. And Jennifer Lawrence, maybe she had a day or two to talk about it. Maybe she's used to having a microphone thrust in her face. But she turned it around and made us realize that she really was the victim and what a horrible thing happened to him. So and some I people say were Tunsil, saying to those actresses, like, well, why do you have naked pictures on your phone? Yeah, right. Why do you, yeah, I have no empathy for these actresses. You did it to yourself, you know? And the other difference, well, there are a couple of I don't of have empathy for this Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence got hurt. Jennifer Lawrence couldn't do the last scene in Silver Linings Playbook because of a strained Achilles tendon. Um, the, so there are a couple differences, of course. One is one was of a creepy sexual nature. Uh, this one is of a uh, creepy gas, ma- gas mask nature. But it's that Jennifer Lawrence probably future hacks show that she does get paid less, but those hacks didn't hurt her earning values. You know, Tunsil lost $8 million. Like, it's pretty much cut and dried. At the sixth pick, Ronnie Stanley was picked by the Ravens. The Ravens, of course, are going to say, oh, that's who we intended all along. But if you just look at the salary slots for both of those, and there's not much wiggle room, we're talking $8 million. And that's what this guy being victimized by someone who was out to get him and the person out to get him, whether it was his stepfather or whoever, that person won. There wasn't one ounce of sympathy to Tunsil, and there wasn't one ounce. I mean, there was an ounce of something. Yeah, I know that the NFL talking heads aren't good at things like sympathy or empathy or actually knowing the difference between sympathy and empathy, but you could at least go on the attack. They're good at that. They should have been going on the attack about whoever was out to get Laramie Tunsil because that guy won. One thing I have been wondering is if he would have fallen that far if he had been smoking a joint. And I think I think part of the reaction really was sort of the weirdness of the contraption to people who even have some familiarity with smoking weed. Uh, Peter King quoted a GM saying, you know, something like, this guy looks like Hannibal Lecter. Um, <laughs> I look like the guy from Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> I, think he, I think it might have saved him a few million dollars if he had used a less uh, sort of uh, bizarre contraption. Yeah, we gotta, you got to think about these things. you got to be smart about right. this. Tunsil himself spoke in the cliches of, you know, the drafted athlete. As you said, Mike, he didn't try to defend it or he didn't make any claim about how his privacy had been invaded. He just talked about, I'm just here to play football. Even when he did, he, even when he did kind of defend it, he was just like, that's not who I am. It was still like in the language of the humble – drafted player. And then when the Dolphins took him, 
I was hoping, or I would have liked to have seen the team that drafted him say, Mike, what, you know, Jennifer Lawrence said, you know, this guy is the victim. He, um, you know, what he did isn't so bad. But what they said was, this is Miami GM Chris Greer. We know the story behind it. We'd rather leave that to maybe the kid to address, but we know the story behind it. So for all these teams, what they want to project is we've done our due diligence. We have good character guys on our board. You know, this has been vetted. They don't want to make a kind of affirmative defense of the action of smoking marijuana. Like, we're not there yet in the NFL. And how about the conflation of injury and off-the-field <laughs> problems? And how about the – one of my favorite things was I heard about five different pundits saying, well, they got to put the support system in place. So I hope this is a, a large apparatus. I hope it's at least eight people who trail him around and try to knock the gas masks out of his hands, this support apparatus. So I don't know if we can criticize any team that decided not to take him because with injuries and uh, drugs and anything – like the thing that they have in common is that they can cause you to miss games, whether it's because you're like physically unable to play or because Roger Goodell – suspends you. And so if you're a team in that moment, you're making a calculus of will this guy be able to play for our team? And there are guys who've fallen in the draft because of weed, you know, Randy Moss or Warren Sapp or, you know, Tyron Matthew. Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame. Keep going. Tyron Matthew. And okay, it turns out that was really smart because they turned out to be undervalued because teams decided, oh, we, we want to stay away from this guy who smoked weed. That was a dumb decision. But there are also guys like Randy Gregory who dropped last year and is now suspended. There's Martavis Bryant. And so even if you don't think that it's bad to smoke weed, you have to kind of tra translate the guy's actions into like NFL morality and think, even if it's not bad, is it going to mean that he's going to be out for four games next year or eight games or like Josh Gordon, maybe never be able to play again? So I think 10, 12 years ago, the Warren Sapp pick especially, that hit close to draft day, and he dropped even though he should have gone. Um, he, he was being considered you know, a top three pick, and he dropped. And it was pretty clear that there was this excellent football player available at a discount for a number of teams, and they were too spooked to take him. And that seems stupid. But since then, I think NFL teams at least have publicly admitted to it, but probably the stodgy guys in the front office, A, have gotten a little younger, but also B, have said, look, since all the college athletes are smoking pot, how do we process this? And from what I understand, they think that most of their kids will smoke pot. It's what you do with it. If you're dumb enough to fail a drug test, that counts against you. Tunsil was not. And they look at other factors like, do you commit crimes and pot? Do you have uh, violence, especially against women. And those things count against you more. So I don't know how many pot-only offenders, not pot-plus offenders, if we're going to call them, have really flamed out in the NFL, pun intended. Um, well, the one, I think one reason everything gets collapsed into this, like, uh, you know, the way you pointed out, Mike, is this idea that, you know, the draft really is, you know, there there isn't really a morality there. The calculus is, is this person going to earn the value of the contract we're going to give him or not? And anything uh, that might prevent him from doing so is put into the bad end of the binary. Um, well, let me interrupt for a second. Miles Jack, the one who Mike Mayock had so much empathy for, he fell way further than Laramie Tunsil because there is concern that 
his leg injury is going to mean he's not going to be able to, you know, he might have to have major surgery before the end of his first contract. And so that, you know, if we're talking about the NFL and morality, you know, NFL teams were way more concerned about Miles Jack, the injured guy, than Laramie Tunsil, the weed guy. So we have to keep that in perspective. But this this is one thing that was so great about Thursday was that it it demonstrated really that this was that the the draft really is this sort of last bastion of these these kinds of values because everything from from the media and uh, just from the teams themselves everything is covered through the lens of the front offices and and sort of this binary calculation they have um, and everybody sort of adopts this sort of system of thinking system of morality whatever. Um, and, you know, the reporters are, are talking about these issues through the lens of the front office, you know, which is why everybody talks about uh, PR and not about the thing itself. The Miami Herald guy, what he said was, um, I'll, I'll, I'll quote it. Um, then there was the matter of those leaked text messages that suggested Tunsil accepted cash from University of Mississippi staffers. He blundered up in Chicago on Thursday, admitting they were real. Tunsil was far better coached Friday, refusing to confirm, refute, or even address the issue. Um, which doesn't make sense if you're thinking, um, if you're if you're looking at the issue through the eyes of a reporter. But the thing is, the reporter wasn't looking uh, at things through the eyes of the reporter. He was looking at it through the eyes of somebody in the front office and uh, somebody within the Dolphins' front office. So teams want you see this in like the absurd questions that they ask at the combine, and then the like bizarre anonymously sourced reports, like about Connor Cook, the Michigan State quarterback, where. There was just some quality that he was lacking and they just couldn't quite put their finger on it. Like basically it sounded like they thought he was an asshole or they not, he, But not the right kind of asshole. Or they like ask you like how would you kill someone? It's just like this weird kind of dime store psychology. And I think with Tunsil and the fact that he admitted to taking money, whether it was for his mom's light bill or something else – in kind of NFL world, you think this is somebody who's not a team player. This is somebody who's a loose cannon. This is somebody we can't control. But the other th- point I wanted to make is this was the same with Michael Sam, right? It's that when a guy gets drafted in a place he gets drafted, that doesn't mean the NFL collectively decided Michael Sam should be a seventh round pick or that Laramie Tunsil should be the number 13 pick. It only takes one team. If the Dolphins hadn't picked him, who the hell knows where this guy could have gone? The Chiefs picked a guy later in the draft who had been arrested and kicked off the Oklahoma State team for um, attacking his pregnant girlfriend. And there's this huge uproar about it in Kansas City. And maybe if the Chiefs hadn't drafted him, nobody would have drafted him. And the conversation would be like, wow, congratulations, NFL. Like, you didn't draft this guy. So we're kind of projecting – is that fair that we're, um, you know, projecting – the attitude of the entire NFL based on a single team's decision? Well, we got a pretty good gauge on a, not a majority, but a fair number, a fair amount of the NFL. I mean, the Titans, before they traded, had convinced anyone, everyone, that they'd be happy to take him with the number one overall pick. So, and no one said he's not deserving. They just said, well, usually take a quarterback number one. And just in terms of Grace and balletic ability combined with strength and speed. He's an amazing player. I think we don't get that because we don't really see what a lineman does. But his equivalent as a wide receiver would be Larry Fitzgerald-esque. Like a guy who dominated college. A guy who 
it just pops off the tape where you say, oh my God. And so that's, that's the other thing about this, that if this were the kind of player where you'd say, oh, all these off the field issues, all these character issues, let's see how many plays he took off. From what I know, I have never broken down Ole Miss tape, but from what I know, <laughs> he is there all the time. He is a great on-field performer. So if you have the set of the hypothetical, well, what might gas mask or not denying this thing that's not illegal and actually is kind of a moral act, what does that mean versus what happens every day in the SEC? Why wouldn't you take the second set? I mean, and I think uh, there were 12 teams that passed, two weren't going to take them. Uh, I don't believe the Ravens, although if you want to say if there's one team that can't possibly deal with whatever version of a PR headache he would be, it's the Ravens. But look what the Titans did by passing on him at eight. That's only one team also. But he he became past uh, something like past the eighth pick. He just became this obvious bargain that you can't say all these other teams were so, are so set on offensive line. You don't want a guy who could be a tackle for 12 years in the NFL. Every team wants that. All right, let's uh, end with Roger Goodell, and um, he had a very odd statement. He was interviewed on Friday, and he told ESPN that the Tunsil dropping in the draft is part of what makes the draft so exciting, which is kind of an odd way to frame this whole situation, Tommy. There was something kind of nice about it, actually, that he didn't uh, immediately go in for uh, kind of the moral bloviating that he is been known for. And then there's also something sociopathic about it. The guy lost yeah. millions of dollars and Goodell's response is basically that showbiz. I would just point out that Tommy has put his finger on something. We're at the point with Roger Goodell where we're so used to his immorality that we must applaud his amorality. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe we should just end it there. That's perfect. Uh, Tommy Craggs, Politics editor of Slate.com, when a video appears of an offensive lineman smoking weed through a gas mask, he is available to write a piece for Slate. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. I'm Helene Olin, the columnist behind the bills here at Slate. Do you have student loans or just credit card debt? In the United States of Debt, a new Slate Academy series, we'll be following the stories of people whose lives have been changed by debt. We'll also hear from experts who will help us understand how the debt epidemic affects us and what we as a society can do about it. Find out more at slate.com slash debt. On Sunday in the largest club stadium in the United Kingdom, the mightiest team in the world's richest league inched closer to winning a title, which is exactly what you'd expect to see at Old Trafford in May. The part you wouldn't expect is that the mighty team is Leicester City which after starting the year as a 5,001 underdog to win the Premier League, English bookies will take bets at those same odds that Elvis will be found alive. They're now a virtual lock to win their first first-tier championship while super-rich, multi-billion-dollar-valued Manchester United, with its 20 league titles, is fighting to get out of fifth place. The two teams played to a 1-1 draw because this is soccer after all. And by the time you hear this podcast, Leicester may have already clinched the title, All they need at this point is a loss from Tottenham, either on Monday against Chelsea or in its two matches after that. And failing that, Leicester needs to win just one of its two last matches or draw them both. According to ESPN's Soccer Power Index, Leicester has a 98% chance to win the championship, which is 50 to 1 in their favor, which you'd have to multiply by 100 to get to 5,000 to 1, which again is the same chance we'll find Elvis alive. 
Joining us now is the man who puts the king in King Power Stadium. It's Rob Tanner. He writes about Leicester City for the local paper, the Leicester Mercury. Welcome back to the podcast, Rob. Thanks for having me back on. So what is the mood? What is the mood in Leicester right now? Everybody's just waiting for the party to start. Obviously, if Spurs fail to beat Chelsea tonight at Stamford Bridge, and they haven't won for over 25 years at Stamford Bridge, uh, then Leicester will be crowned champions. And they'll be the most incredible champions that uh, English football's had for a number of years. So, uh, yeah, everybody's just ready to go. The uh, champagne is on ice. They're just waiting to pop those corks. Are you going to get wasted tonight, Rob, or do you have to write? Oh, I've got to write off on deadline. I'm have a very busy night. <laughs> Wait, asking an English journalist if he's going to get wasted or write doesn't seem correct to me. No. Uh, <laughs> what kind of town is Leicester? Uh, it's a multicultural city. Um, it's a population of around three hundred thirty thousand in the East Midlands, and uh, yeah, it's um, it's a unique place really because it's got this vibrant city in the middle of a very rural county. It's made up of a lot of villages, so yeah, you know, you can get um, you can get a real eclectic mix of people in the city. So uh, yeah, but they're all in love with their football team. And uh, it's, it's a great source of civic pride for them and identity around the world. No, nothing carries the name of Leicester like the football team. And what they're doing this season is literally putting Leicester on the map. I would agree with that, having thought the name of the city from maps was Leicester. But now <laughs> from football, knowing it's Leicester. Um, there's not one thing that explains the success of a team that was supposed to be so very, very unsuccessful. And I've read a lot about the influence of the coach. And yet it doesn't seem that it's tactics or brilliance as opposed to just mood that has inspired his players. There's so many different elements that have combined to, to put them where they are now. And people still can't believe it. Even when they lift the trophy above their heads, the people will still won't believe it. They'll think they were living in some sort of parallel universe. This is a side that was bottom of the Premier League for 140 days last, uh, last season. Sides like Leicester City aren't supposed to compete for Premier League titles, let alone win them. Uh, but it's, um, the club's been building towards this for a number of years. They've got a billionaire backer from Thailand. Uh, they've invested a lot of money in the infrastructure of the club, so they've got sound foundations. And the squad itself, the core of it, has been together now for three years, and they've grown and developed. All these players are hungry. They've all faced disappointment and rejection. They've all got a point to prove, including the manager, Claudio Ranieri. He's got a glittering CV, but uh, his last job was manager of the Greek national team. They lost to the Faroe Islands, so it was pretty humiliating for him. So when he was appointed, there was a bit of a mixed response from supporters because of that, but uh, it's been an inspired choice because he's added to um, what Nigel Pearson built and he's brought some tactical knowledge as well and, and, a, and an identity about how they're going to play their game plan. Uh, but fundamentally, they're a group of lads that work incredibly hard for each other. They're super fit and uh, they're just fully committed to what they're doing. I would imagine that in the city, part of the connection is feeling like this team has character and that it's a character that matches that of the the city because when you've got like whether it's Man City or Man U and these kind of high priced players who come from around the world, I can't imagine that people who've grown up in Manchester lived their other lives are like, wow, you know, I really see myself in this uh, high priced guy from uh, from another country. But in Leicester, I think people can actually look at the players on the field and kind of identify both with their life stories and also with the kind of like ineffable thing about the spirit of the team or the chemistry or any of that kind of BS. Well, in this case, it's probably less BS than in most cases. 
Well, um, Leicester is a working class city. It's a blue collar city, and 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 that mirrors the football club. The supporters who go down there are, are, are from very humble backgrounds, uh, but it's also a multicultural city. And uh, you know, there's lots of different creeds and colours and religions, and they all come down and watch Leicester City and cheer on Leicester City. So they can identify with their football club. And you know, what what has been great about this season is the ultimate underdog story is that they're taking on the aristocrats, the big money men. Um, I mean, they're they're usual starting lineup only costs around £22 million. I mean, a lot of the sides they're competing with, Man United and that, one player would cost a lot more than that. So um, I think that's why people are, can identify with Leicester City, not just in the city, but across the country and around the world. It, I mean, what we're seeing played out here is the ultimate sporting success story. It's like a Rocky movie. Uh, so it's incredible. One of the good ones. Yeah, what a, not, <laughs> yeah one not, of the early ones. Yeah, yeah. But this uh, Vardy, Jamie Vardy, he he can't stay on the team. I mean, he's going to be hired at ten times a multiple of what he's been paid, right? No, I don't think so. He's uh, signed a new contract to keep him at Leicester City. The thing with Jamie is that um, he's, he's had a long struggle to get where he is now, and he's twenty nine years old. So this is this is his moment. He knows this is his time in the sun. And at Leicester City, he's loved. He's the talisman. He's going to play every week. He's going to be the one scoring the goals. He's going to be the poster boy. If he goes to a Man City or a Man United or a Liverpool, he's going to spend a lot of time on the bench. They do a lot of squad rotation. He's not going to be playing every week. And he's the sort of player that needs confidence. He's the sort of player that needs to get into a groove. And that's when the goals start to flow. Uh, And he's going to be disrupted at another club. So I don't think he's going to leave. The problem's going to be keeping the likes of Riyad Mahrez and N'Golo Kante. These two have been revolution, revelations this season for, for Leicester City. They're, I mean, Mahrez was bought for £400,000. Both of them were playing in the second tier of French football three years ago. But now the likes of Barcelona are looking at them. Now, they're different uh, scenarios for them because they're younger lads. They've still got to come towards their prime. And uh, it might be more difficult for Leicester City to, to uh, keep hold of those two. Here's something I don't understand. Um, we know that Leicester has a, a small payroll compared to Man U or Chelsea or any of these other clubs. But as you mentioned, they're owned by a Thai billionaire. So is there any reason that the Thai billionaire couldn't have spent more money on these players? And are we kind of being all happy and congratulating this team of you know guys who aren't making high wages? Like, Shouldn't we be critical of the owner for not actually spending more money? It doesn't seem like there's a, a, you know, a reason that he couldn't spend more. You make a good point there because um, Riyad Mahrez was on the radar at Arsenal and uh, Arsene Wenger, the Arsenal manager, said that he couldn't possibly have signed him for £400,000 because if he'd signed a player for such a measly sum, (laughs) he would have been questioned by the supporters as a lack of ambition. You know, why are we trying to sign a player for £400,000? We should be going out and signing a player for £40 Uh, but Leicester City can't compete with these big clubs. Although they have got a billionaire owner, they, they're not where those clubs are uh, in, in, a fi- in a financial sense. They're billionaires so and they're billionaires. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they are football clubs with mega money and there are Leicester Cities. Uh, I mean, Leicester City are richer than most now, but um, still they're a long way behind Man City, Man United and the rest. Um, so they've had to look elsewhere. They've had to look in places where... Other clubs aren't looking uh, because they can't compete financially and they can't compete in terms of prestige because they've never won anything. They've never been in Europe before, uh, not in the Champions League anyway. 
so they've had to find players where others haven't been looking. And that's how they found Kante, Mares. Vardy was playing non-league football when they signed him. He was in the fifth tier of English football. So they, they've got their recruitment spot on. And all these players as well have got residual value. If they sell them on now, they're going to make a massive profit on them as well. So they're not buying players that have been doing the rounds at the usual clubs and picking up £100,000 a week. They're buying young, hungry players who are keen to develop and grow with the club. That said, I will note that the Thai bot has lost some of its its value against the dollar, but the ruble has been cut in half. So maybe the Thai billionaire is, you know, a little more of a billionaire than we thought. Um, I want to ask you about the fact that Leicester City hasn't played in the Champions and hasn't played some of these extra games. And also, they get more days off a week. I read um, an article where uh, Ranieri was talking about two days off a week. How much do you think that rest has come into play and helped them? absolutely vital because they're a vibrant team they're an energetic team they work harder than the opposition uh, so having that rest and not having to uh, fight um, battles on so many different fronts has been integral in their ability to refresh and regroup and go again every week. I mean, every time they've had a setback, they've bounced back every week. And uh, they just um, it has been a key. Uh, it's going to be a problem next season, obviously going to be going to be in the Premier League. And as exciting as that is going to be, you know, unless they really strengthen the squad, um, you know, they won't be able to get away with the, the minimal amount of changes to the starting lineup they've had this year. I mean, to put it into context, uh, an average Premier League side will make 95 ch- uh, changes to a starting lineup during the course of a whole season. And the record, the lowest record, is 80 Man United set several years ago. Leicester City have made 27 changes <laughs> to their starting 11 this season. Um, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, hardly any injuries, which is down to the sports science as much as luck. People going about them being lucky, but they invest a hell of a lot in sports science. Um, I mean, the, the head physio goes out onto the training pitch in the morning every day and tests it for firmness. And they tailor the training around that to uh, limit the, the risk of soft tissue injuries. So the science that goes into it is incredible. And that's part of the big investment from the owners. So um, they have been a little bit lucky. But I mean, they picked up a few uh, suspensions in recent weeks as well. We lost Vardy for two games. Danny Drinkwater's now got a game ban because he got sent off yesterday. Uh, but besides that, they haven't had to change the side at all. So Leicester City is going to be getting a lot of money from participating in the Champions League. You get a massive payout from that. And there's no way around it. It's going to change the nature of the club. It's going to change the character of the club. They're going to need to bring in more players, as you alluded to, to play in these extra matches. And there are a couple of different routes that Leicester City could go. They could splash out a huge amount of money, um, like the Man Cities, like the Man U's, and maybe the kind of connection that the city feels with the team would feel a little bit more tenuous. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. Or they could just pocket the money and then the owner would be criticized, I think rightly so, for being greedy. And so there's they're kind of in a tough spot. I mean, maybe the easy answer is just spend a lot of money on players. But I guess the the statement here is there's never going to be a Leicester City club like this again. It's a one-year phenomenon. And even if they're great after this year, the nature of the club will have changed. Well, I think the whole of the Premier League will have changed, um, not just Leicester City. I mean, oh, you're right to point that out because um, if you bring in more players, then that camaraderie and that team spirit, that bond, you know, you're bringing in new new um, elements to that, that, that can be disrupted. Also, when you see the club spending a lot more money, you know, that how does that affects the uh, the mood within the camp when somebody who's been signed for 20 million is coming in and he's earning 50 grand more a week than some one of the other team members you know does that change the mood within the camp so there are these elements now they city are 
you know, it does feel like the City are moving up a level. They're going to move up a level now. And it's how they deal with that which is going to be crucial. But in terms of changing the landscape of the Premier League, um, the big boys will not be this bad again next season. They're all changing their managers. They're all uh, reflecting on how they do things. They're looking at Leicester City in particular as an example of how to change their thinking. But not only that, there's uh, other clubs like Leicester City now that have hope, that have belief that uh, next season they don't have to just target a mid-table finish and hope for a good cup run or perhaps challenge for a Europa League spot. They can do Leicester. They can go on and challenge for a top four. And um, so I think next season is going to be incredibly interesting to see how this has affected things. All right. So are, are we going to have a riot tonight? Like, uh, are, are there going to be cars turned over? Uh, <laughs> what's, <laughs> no. what's the scene going to be? I mean, you guys, we had a film over here based on a book called Fever Pitch. And it's based around the Arsenal's title success of 1989. I think it was remade in America and it uh, turned into baseball and it was yep. the Red Sox, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's a scene in that where everybody comes out at the end. All the Arsenal fans are out in the street with the flags, you know, having a drink, popping champagne. It's going to be like that tonight. I think there'll be a fair bit of ale drunk in uh, Leicester. And Jimmy <laughs> Fallon will star in the American remake, sadly. Enough. Oh, well, why not? We've got the Vardy <laughs> film coming out. There might be a part for him. I mean, Vinnie Jones has been approached to uh, play Nigel Pearson and uh, Louis Tomlinson of One Direction could be uh, playing the Vardy role, so uh, why not? Jimmy Fallon could have a role in that. All right, well, I hope that there's a role for a plucky sports writer at the Leicester Mercury. Uh, (laughs) If so, maybe one of the One Direction members could play you. Rob, thank you. Rob, thank you so much. Just before I go, guys, just before I go, I've got to tell you, I've got some news. 5,000 to 1, I've got a book coming out. Uh, 5,000 to 1, The Leicester City Story. It's coming out. It's available on Amazon now. Eight ninety nine pounds in Britain. So uh, have a look at it. Pre-order it. It's the definitive story of this season. All right. We shall. Rob Tanner of the Leicester Mercury. Thank you so much. No problem. Anytime, boys. Thank you, Rob. Cheers. Bye. I'll pluck down 11 quid on that book. <laughs> Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. For answers to the world's most pressing economic questions, from finance's role in addressing climate change to the implications of central bank policy decisions, Tune into Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, the firm's podcast. Each episode features in-depth discussions with some of the firm's leading experts on the markets, evolving industries, and the global economy. Subscribe to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or listen at gs.com slash podcast. Last year, Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, the co-hosts of Baseball Prospectus's excellent daily podcast, Effectively Wild, got called up to the show getting the chance to test out their theories about how the game should be played using a real team and real players. That team was the Sonoma Stompers, an independent club in California's Pacific Association. And Ben and Sam had them try extreme defensive shifts and using their closer in the fifth inning and other things that statistically minded folks think will work, but players might be a little suspicious of. Like all things in life, it kind of worked and kind of didn't. And they wrote about the whole experience in a new book, It's out this week. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. In addition to the podcast, Ben writes for 538. Sam is the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. They're both on the phone with us now. So whoever's the better writer, please say hello first. All right. Awkward Uh, silence. Hi, hi, (laughs) Sam. (laughs) We're both too selfless to respond. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sam. Hey, Josh. Uh, So... How did this thing happen? And who wants, who's going to answer? Sam, how did this thing happen? 
So it came up as a joke. We were friends with Dan Evans, the former GM of the Dodgers, and he was trying to get an upstart. Well, I guess it was an old league that had gone defunct uh, back in business. And we had him on our podcast and we're talking about it with him. And just sort of jokingly, Ben goes, well, if you're giving away teams, we'll take one. And we all chuckled. And then like immediately within, like before he got to the end of the sentence, Ben and I both thought, wait, actually that makes a lot of sense because we have spent our lives telling people how baseball teams should be run, uh, how smart we are and how, you know, much better everything could be done. And independent baseball is to some degree uh, the perfect place to kind of put these things into practice uh, because the incentives are a little bit different. It's a little bit freer, uh, but the level of play is pretty high. It's not major league high, but, you know, to a dog, it would look the same. It's basically, (laughs) you know, high, high A, (laughs) high A or A ball. Um, and uh, these guys are a lot of them uh, would definitely be good enough to play in uh, the affiliated minor leagues. Some of them are a little too old. Some of them are a little too short. Some of them will go on to play in the affiliated minor leagues. Uh, and so we thought it would be a good test for ourselves. Uh, it would be a good test for some of the principles that we've long believed in, but uh, have never really uh, had to deal with being tested. How much higher firepower did you have and how did you deal with your manager? Well, we had a lot of help because we were kind of trying to compensate for our lack of backgrounds in baseball. You know, all the so-called baseball men have been in the game for decades. They've played. They know some guy they played with in some league five years ago, and they can call him up and say, come play for us. Whereas we didn't have any contacts except for contacts in the sabermetric community and people on the Internet. And so we tried to compensate for our lack of contacts by scouring the internet for people who could help us, smart stats people, and people who could help us target players to sign based on their college statistics. That was harder than we had imagined. The first player we tried to sign was Sam's cousin, and he said no, which (laughs) seemed like a a bad sign. At the time, he was a catcher with a broken hand, and he still said, I'm waiting for an offer from a higher-level league. So eventually we we winnowed down our list from, you know, 7 billion to the 22 players or so that we needed on this team. Unfortunately, we didn't have the same sort of spreadsheet method for signing coaches and managers. So we took our best shot and we signed a 37-year-old player manager named Phelant Lantini who was from Sonoma, so we figured he'd be a hometown hero, he'd probably be one of the best players in the league. And we essentially hoped for the best. We hoped that he would come in having been a rookie manager. He had never done this before, so he wouldn't expect to get his way in every area. And uh, he knew coming in what the deal was, that this was going to be a strange situation where two stat heads were having unprecedented say over the team. And in practice, of course, it didn't always go as smoothly as we had hoped. But Sam, if you had a cousin who said things like you can't scout for grit, dove headfirst into first base and thought the shift was ruining baseball, would you actually still count him as a cousin? Wouldn't that be very awkward at family reunions? We it's no worse than Thanksgiving already is, uh, as you know, most people are aware. Uh, The question of how much power we had is actually kind of difficult to answer in a way, because to, to some degree, we had, you know, close to absolute power. We had the owner's blessing, and the owner has absolute power. We had the GM's blessing, and the GM in, at this level is uh, often distracted by uh, by things like selling ads and, and buying, um, you know, plastic cups. And so he doesn't really have a lot of time for baseball operations. He was willing to give it to us entirely. There was no point at any point where we were told, no, you can't do that. No, you have to back off. No, it's our decision. 
The problem is that Ben and I are not the types to take such absolute power and run with it. And so we really looked at this not as a stunt. We really wanted it to be real life. We wanted to acknowledge that even when you have absolute power in an organization, you have to think about the other stakeholders and make decisions that aren't going to lose all of their support. And so uh, I think some people are frustrated with Ben and I because we're so passive in a lot of cases, especially early on. We sort of grew into our voices, I think. You wrote a, an op-ed in the New York Times that was very self-flagellating. And it was <laughs> sort of – it called to mind Sam Hinkie for me because um, Sam Hinkie, part of his problem with the Sixers was – or at least this was the analysis after he left – is that he was a very bad marketer of his own ideas. Even if you think that the ideas were good ones, he didn't do a good job of selling it to the public – I guess in the end, he didn't do a good job of selling it to the owners of the team. Um, and what you wrote in this op-ed was basically that you guys screwed up in the beginning when you went in by saying, we're the stats guys, and we're going to tell you smart stat things to do, and that you kind of figured out later on that you need to present information, even if it is you know, from advanced metrics or whatever. You don't want to tell the players that that's what it is. And you don't want to come in and present yourself as like the guy with the pocket protector who never played the game. Yeah, I think that there were two acts of arrogance that we uh, fell for. One is believing that everybody thinks just the way we do and that all we need to do is present information uh, that would be convincing to us. Other people just, they, they process information differently. They prioritize it differently. And it's sort of crazy to think that, I mean, th- look, this is, what I'm going to say next sounds super arrogant, but you go into it thinking, I'm very smart, and you have to recognize that not everybody is going to be as quote-unquote smart as you think you are. The truth is that you're probably not as smart as you are either, but even if you're not mature enough to realize that throughout the process, you at least have to recognize that other people just don't accept the same data that you do uh, or aren't willing to uh put as much effort into understanding it as you do. Ideally, you would realize your own flaws, but at the very least, at the very, very least, you have to be aware of other people's flaws. And I, I still, even at the end of that, it still sounds arrogant. So sorry for that arrogance. Uh, <laughs> the, other, the other thing is just that there's a real data overload. And, you know, sometimes, if I can use an analogy, sometimes we get frustrated at TV broadcasts because they're talking about RBIs and they're talking about hitting streaks and we want them to be talking about, um, you know, zone ratings. And the truth is that when you're presenting all of this, the screen is already crowded, the broadcast is already often crowded, and it's not necessarily the time to give a 45-minute lecture uh, on how zone rating is calculated. And so there's a there's a, a real practical, pragmatic need to be simple. And these guys that we're trying to present information to, uh, they have a couple minutes in the day where maybe they're really going to be open to it or where they have the time to deal with it. And maybe a you know a fraction of a second when the pitch is coming where they're going to have to try to tap into that. It's just not really practical that you're going to explain it to 22 people in a you know minute and a half uh, speech in the dugout before the game. And I, I think that probably to some degree we just had to really work on um, on making this stuff general enough that they could take it with them into the batter's box. Do you guys think that the players you had? Some are old, some are 37 years old. Was a hurdle that 
they weren't into advanced stats, that they buy the old way of thinking that the sabermetric community is always railing against? Or did they actually, maybe some of them know what BABIP was or give a damn? How big a difference was it that they had an old way of thinking versus they just didn't buy into exactly what you were selling? I think there was sort of a breakdown depending on the player's origin story. If it was a player who we signed based on our crazy stats and our spreadsheet, then I think that made them naturally more receptive to our message because it had gotten them a job, even if they didn't completely understand the details of how that had happened. But I think there was a lot of natural curiosity, especially at that level. Players are not used to having the sort of data at their disposal that major league players do. They're not used to having pitch effects systems set up in the ballpark as we did, or even to have video of their own at-bats or of the opposing starter that day, which we eventually had once we set up a, a scouting network and had people at every game. So I think once we had something concrete to offer them that seemed like it might actually improve them, they were interested. And, and I think just generally, you know, we, we were sort of these alien life form carpetbaggers just plopped down into the middle of the clubhouse at first for no discernible reason. And so there was a natural curiosity about what these guys were doing here. And some of the players were more interested in our philosophies about baseball than others. But I think once we got to the point that we could offer players useful information, like how hard a pitcher throws or the percentage of times that he throws a certain pitch or where he tends to throw that pitch, that kind of actionable information. I think almost everyone was receptive to it to some degree. Uh, ben, why don't you give us one example of a strategy, a kind of on-field thing that you guys implemented that you think worked really well? And Sam, maybe then you can chime in with one where you thought it would work or the stats said that it would work, but then you kind of realized it was more complicated. Well, we had a sort of season-long power struggle with our player manager about our best pitcher on the team for most of the season, Sean Conroy, who was a player we signed based on college statistics in our spreadsheet from a small school in upper New York and a Division three school. He hadn't been drafted by any major league team, but we thought he'd done well enough in college that he would succeed at this level, and he did. He proved to be the best pitcher on the team and one of the best pitchers in the league, so naturally, we wanted to use him as much as we could. And, and our idea going into the season was that we would have this sort of flexible pitching staff where we'd have some guys start and some guys relieve and no need to put any labels on these things, no need to have an established <laughs> closer who comes in in the ninth inning with a one-run lead. But we found a lot of resistance to that idea of sort of making a fluid pitching staff. And so we went back and forth on this. We had Sean start. He actually, unbeknownst to us, became the first openly gay player in professional baseball, which we hadn't known would be the case when we signed him. It was just sort of a, a happy accident that occurred that season. And so he started a game and he was great and, you know, threw a complete game. And then the very next day, our manager put him back into the closer role. And we couldn't believe that you would want to limit the innings that this excellent pitcher threw. Eventually, we broke through and we managed to install him in this sort of hybrid fireman role. At that point, we would just bring Sean in in the fifth or the sixth inning and have him finish the game in a, you know, a one-run game, a, a tie game. And it really worked. And you know, it was one of those moments where we were very confident that what we were doing was the right decision and Sean was totally on board with it. But if it had gone wrong the first time, it would have backfired so much that we probably never would have been able to do it again, even if it was just 
bad luck that it had happened to go wrong that one time. And so it was one of many instances in the season where we believed we were doing something right that over the long haul would show itself to be the correct strategy. But if it didn't work that first time, then we might not get the chance to do it again. Yeah, I like that Ben's answer about a thing that worked really well involved a lot of things not working really well. <laughs> it sort of reminds me of the season. So I got a couple thoughts here. One, you should have branded Conroy with the Conroy rules t-shirt thing, which is the Yankees did with Jabba. A terrible set of rules, but once you brand it as a t-shirt, people buy into it. <laughs> Two, I think you guys have a uh, future, not only as prognosticators and experts on baseball, but this took place in Sonoma. You could go around to the tech companies. This is a who moved my cheese type situation where you're talking you're really just talking about group dynamics and how badly people want to be slotted into a place so this gives me the idea of you know of the skinner box you should have the miller limber box where the guys play baseball and they're really good at baseball but they could never hear the broadcast of a major league baseball game because that's ruining them if all they knew was hitting and fielding and throwing and never knew about situations or things like aces we'd all be better off Lastly, I think of Joe Madden, who I think we all agree is the best manager in baseball. And I've heard you guys on the podcast talking about that. He even explodes the idea that at most a manager might be worth, you know, three or four wins. He could be worth who knows how many. But I think it was something that I first heard Jim Calhoun say, though. He stole it from someone else. Before they care how much you know, they have to know how much you care. And I think Joe Madden gets that tremendously. Like he could come with all the strategy but his players really like him and he really likes them as individuals and so that's a lesson i think that you're telling me that you learned yeah that was a big part of it for us was just being there every day you know even if we weren't actively doing anything we wanted to establish our presence we wanted to show the players that we were putting as much time into this as they were so we were in the clubhouse before every game showing them video we were in the dugout during the games, which we wanted to do just to sort of break that barrier that separates stat heads from the field, but also just to show them that we had some stake in this team. If we had just sort of parachuted in and, you know, set the lineup and then walked away and watched the game in the stands or something, I don't think anyone would have been inclined to listen to them. But given that we were clearly spending a lot of time running these numbers and putting these videos together and editing for them, they eventually, I, I think, acknowledged us as as real members of the team. And, and so they were willing to to listen and, and buy in a little more. And, and as to what you said about, you know, keeping the players ignorant of results, if we had somehow figured out a way for the players not to know our record and not to know the standings, I think that would have helped us because yeah. as we discovered uh, a week or so into the season, whether the team was doing great or doing terrible, it was used as a reason not to change anything. So if the team was winning and, you know, on a hot streak, well, then, of course, you can't change anything then because everything's working and why mess with success? But if you lose a couple games in a row and then you want to change something, well, then it looks like a, an overreaction. It looks like you're panicking and you're losing control of the clubhouse. So there's really only this you know, slight window here and there where there wasn't a compelling reason not to change things. And so we found that winning, which we did a lot at the start of the season, became just as, as big an obstacle as, as losing was later in the season. All right, before we go, um, I wanted to note that there's going to be a long excerpt from the book on Slate this week. It's going to go up on Tuesday morning, and it's about Sean Conroy, the great pitcher that you mentioned, who also uh, came out as gay, the first openly gay player in professional baseball. It's a story of how all that happened. It's really, really interesting. Um, so folks should look out for that. 
Also, Stefan is very sad that he couldn't be here today because he actually blurbed the book. He said, <laughs> it's the improbable spawn of Moneyball and Bull Durham, which I thought was great. That's a really good blurb, Fatsis. He was one of two blurbers who tried to use the Moneyball meets blur- Bull Durham line. And since he got it in first, we stuck with his. Yeah. Very unoriginal, Fatsis. Unoriginal, but <laughs> correct. Um, and also, I know you guys do like contests on your show sometimes. I want to give away a couple copies of the book because it's really awesome and everyone should read it. I want to encourage the audience to to go out there and and buy it and we'll we'll prime the pump a little bit. So if people tweet out a link to the show, they put my Twitter handle on there. How can we decide who deserves the book? I got it. I got it. Beat Bull Durham meets Moneyball. My entry is it's Star Wars The Force Awakens meets the diving bell and the butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> So but definitely PK. put my Twitter handle there. Put a link to the podcast. <laughs> put your analogy. If you can fit in Sam and Ben and Mike's Twitter handles in there too, then maybe you'll get bonus points. But I like that idea. Good luck with the book, you guys. Thank you so much. Everybody should listen to Effectively Wild as well. Just so much, The density of plugs here is just <laughs> intense. But thank you, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. Now it's time for After Balls and... The general manager of the Sonoma Stompers, Mike, one of the best all-time names, better even than Danny Drinkwater. Yeah, you may have known him from such video games as, well, go ahead, say the name. Theo Fightmaster. Fightmaster! Fight! (laughs) I don't think we need to say any more than that. Uh, Mike, what is your Fightmaster? My Fightmaster, it's an annual tradition here on Hang Up and Listen. Let's do it. Let's grade the first round of the NBA playoffs. (laughs) All right, we've not done this before. But all right, you ready, Josh? I'm ready. We'll start with the number one seed in the East. Cleveland against the Pistons, a number one seed sweeps in four. This would lead one to think it would be an F. But there were a couple close games, first and last. I also enjoyed seeing uh, some balance scoring out of Irving and uh, Love. Even J.R. Smith uh, lit it up from three, as he is wants to do. I give it a D minus. What do you give it? Oh, wow. I thought you were going to talk it up. I would give it like a B minus. I thought that oh series. Oh, my God. This is. I thought right. that series was really fun. Well, look, just. It's a four game sweep. The one. All right. All right just All right. just keep me honest. Let's keep going. All right. All right. Toronto against Indy. Now, I guess it was. It They played many games, but not many of them were that close. I guess arguing for it is that uh, in game six, it was 89 to 84. This closest game in this series was uh, game five, but I can't get into game fives that much. Anytime a series <laughs> is tied 2-2, what do you do? And also, it's Toronto against Indy. Who gives a damn? But I give it a B-. minus. What do you give it? I would give that series a C for the following reason. Right. I watched the end of game seven, and I thought it was yep. one of the worst basketball games I've ever seen in my life. I was just angry at how bad that game was, and so I'm going to downgrade it uh, to a C. Now we have four four teams and two games in the East where all the teams, I, I guess they gave them all their own seeds, but they all had 48 wins. Home, field, home court did come into play here and there. Um, and speaking of one of the worst game sevens, let's go with uh, Charlotte against Miami. What do you give that series? <laughs> uh, I would give that one, I guess I would give that one a B for the following reason. I thought that there were some interesting kind of twists and turns in that series. I got really into the resurgence of Jeremy Lin, and there were some good Jeremy Lin games. 
Dwayne Wade was awesome at the end of game six. Um, he was. Really vintage yes. Wade. And game seven was a disappointment, but I think in the end, the better team won. And so I am a fan of justice and truth in the American way. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not in the A range, but I would give it a B. Nope. Okay, I'm giving it a C plus, and here's why. It starts with a 31-point game, which makes Mike say, do I really have to care about this? And then, you know, they get it to a game seven. So Mike says, all right, maybe I was wrong not to care about this. And then it's a 33-point game. Plus, it doesn't matter who wins this. I give it a C plus. Let's go to Boston and Atlanta. This was the series I was actually interested in, Divergent Styles. I'm quite interested in how Brad Stevens has crafted his team of crafty and wily non-scorers and how they reacted after being exposed as a team that has no scoring. And yet still, it was not an exciting series. Overall, too many blowouts ended on a 17-point game. Game six was a 12-point game, but going into the fourth quarter was 80 to 59. So it was deceptively not very close. I give this series a C minus. What do you give it, Josh? Yeah, I give it like maybe a C plus. I feel like I need to go back and defend my ranking of the Detroit Cleveland series. All the games in that series were really close. And I also felt like yeah. I hadn't gotten to see Detroit that much this year. And they were just a really fun team to watch, very well coached by Stan Van Gundy. Drummond is fascinating. I really liked Caldwell Pope. The fact that Stanley Johnson was giving LeBron a lot of shit was a lot of fun. It was just every game was kind of interesting and dramatic, and there were all these kind of twists and turns. Whereas with the Hawks Celtic series, it went six, but there were a couple of good Isaiah Thomas games. But a lot of the time, if you turn in and watch the game, you're like wasting your time. It was just a horrible experience. So as far as like percentage of the time watching the games that I enjoyed myself, the yeah. Hawks Celtic series was way lower. Oh, I see. So you kind of uh, give demerits for a longer series where the games are bad. Like, why yes. did I watch this? Yes. Whereas I look at the I feel like they're just stringing picture. it along. I see. But I I mean, the other way to look at a four-game sweep that you give a B-minus to where the number one <laughs> seed wins, let's say it was five games, so that knocks it up to a B, and six games is a B-plus, and seven games is an A-minus. We're at A-minus just for going any seven-game series if they were that close, I guess. And then the, there was not an upset. So, I don't know. It just seems like a pretty inflated grade for a Fair, a fair enough. All right. This is what I hope we can agree on. Spurs against Memphis, four-game sweep. One game, maybe you could argue, was close. I give it a flat-out F. Yeah, I, I made the conscious decision not to watch any of that series, so I'll give it an F slash incomplete. Okay. Then we have the Golden State series, which... I, just, I mean, Golden State's fascinating to watch. They're aesthetically brilliant. There was one close game, and it was decided on a bad call. I don't know if you think that makes it for a good series or bad series. Maybe it ups the intrigue. And you are compelled to see, well, how are they going to do without Steph? So even though they blew out the Rockets and all the other games, I'm giving this one a B-. minus. I would put that one in the C range just because it was the Rockets are just so bad that they make me angry. Like yeah, how yeah. poorly they, they play together. Plus, I don't like James Harden at all, even though he's a great player. I hate watching him play. And the fact that Steph barely played and then came back. The game four where he came back, got hurt, that was horrible basketball and made me sad. So I hated that series. Okay. Now we have Dallas OKC. It was a five-game series, average margin of victory, 18 points. What are you, what are you going for? 
Oh man, that uh, that series also <laughs> made me angry. <laughs> yeah, I would give that one a C minus or a D plus or something. I I'm, I give it a D plus too. So let's just agree with we'll, get, we'll both give it a D plus. What do you give Portland versus the Clippers? It's a six game series. Only two games were in single digits. I got to confess that I didn't watch that one because it was on too late. And plus, yeah, exactly. it was a it was a blowout for the Clippers, and then it was a blowout for the. Blazers, so it didn't really that, seem yeah. like you really needed to watch any of it. Like, yeah, it seemed like it was inevitable that the Clippers were going to win before it was inevitable that the Blazers were going to win. So I'll abstain. I, that was another one I just got to give watch. it something. Got to give it something. Come on, uh, I gave it a B. C, I give it a gentleman's C, B. All right, you give it a gentleman's C. So I have given, I've done my tally, and it's one point six, meaning so far I've given the NBA playoffs a C minus. Not really even a C minus. Do you want to do an overall grade, like the fact that? We, these were the individual grades. You just want to have the grade point average be that, or do you want to do an overall grade like the gestalt of the playoffs so far? Because if I can, I could knock it down to a D plus. That's really <laughs> what I wanted the grade to be at the end. <laughs> I think you've convinced everyone that the first round sucked, which was your strategy. So maybe you should just right. stop while you're ahead. So unless I've done it wrong, and we have good listeners, they know, I have you grading it out at a 1.5, which is some place between a, a D plus and a C minus. That seems tough but fair. No right, great inflation good. on this podcast. That's right. There was a little. Wow. I thought we were going to have a big argument when you love that four-game sweep, when you <laughs> defended it to the hilt, when you got a tattoo of uh, the final <laughs> box score. <laughs> I gave it a B-. minus. It's not that high. Josh, what's your fight master? So how closely have you followed the Chicago rooftop like legal battle between the team and the neighbors? Uh, a little bit. I I was against the Rickles. Rickles, no, the Rickets, right? <laughs> the Rickets, Thank yeah, you. yeah. They hired the they hired Don Rickles to insult the people <laughs> on the rooftops. That was an effective strategy. Hey, you hockey puck! <laughs> so I was against the Rickets, and then they came out really against Trump. So now I'm kind of for the Rickets. Um, that's fair. Yeah. So there's been this constant battle. The rooftops that look over Wrigley Field for a long time. People who own those buildings have sold tickets and the club feels like it's infringing on their rights and the Cubs have bought most of the properties or come to some sort of agreements, but there's still lawsuits pending. It's interesting and it's also this relic, right, because this is how stadiums used to be back when they were kind of just built in the city grid. They weren't moated by parking lots and concrete. They weren't kind of on the edge of metropolitan areas like these things used to happen a lot and i was looking into this a little bit and have you heard of the concept of a spite fence mike spite like uh <laughs> like in spite of like, a spite fence is this like a hate watch or a, or a hate fuck <laughs> i wasn't expecting you to go there but sure are um, they hate fucking the cub fans <laughs> but the uh according to wikipedia a spite fence is an actual term uh, in uh, in in legal matters, it's an overly tall fence or a structure in the nature of a fence or a row of trees, bushes, or hedges constructed or planted between adjacent lots by a property owner who is annoyed with or wishes to annoy a neighbor or wishes to completely obstruct the view between lots. A spite fence. So the spite fence, there's a long and, and proud and storied history of this in baseball. And I found a great history of it in Detroit in a book called A Place for Summer, A Narrative History of Tiger Stadium by Richard Back. Um, 
It goes back to the 1880s in Detroit. Um, there are these things called wildcat stands. People who had adjacent properties used to build bleachers that just overlooked the fence. And then the owners of the teams would respond by just building the fence higher. So they would just build the stands higher. And it's not great. Isn't a history great, Mike? <laughs> yes. I liked, what I like to do is listen to it and hear about it and then analogize it to the present. I'm thinking of paywalls and scrambled TV channels. Let me continue, and you can think of even more analogies. So there was a guy in the 1880s named John Deppert Jr. who built bleachers atop his barn, which stood on the south side of Leland Street, just outside the first baseline. Um, he would get between 25 and 100 people to watch the Detroit Wolverines. Wolverines, right? Yeah. He would undercut the ticket price of 50 cents. He would charge a dime. He would also sell lemonade, nuts, and apples. This uh, wow. John Depper Jr. is an American hero. We should all celebrate him. So here's what the, the Wolverines tried to do. They raised additional boards. They built large cloth screens. And Depper just keep building his bleachers higher and higher and higher. And there was an actual uh, legal case about this in the 1880s. And this is the real genius of this Deppert guy. So you'd imagine that the team would argue that this Deppert was a real nuisance and, you know, he was infringing on the rights. But this is what Deppert's lawyer argued. He said that the games were a nuisance and that they collect and draw together the worst elements of society. Who so all I can do is sell lemonade in response. <laughs> who congregate outside of the grounds and tramp upon the adjacent property and insult women and children. But wait, yeah. there's more. Often the ball is knocked over the fence and great injury is done to the adjoining premises and getting the ball back by drawing together the crowds who climb upon and attempt to look through the high fence. There have often occurred fights and brawls and obscene and blasphemous language has been used to such an extent that the owners of adjacent premises have been compelled to call on the police and arrests have been made. Can you imagine, Mike? <laughs> Well, I do live two blocks from the Barclays Center around Islanders game day. I can't imagine, yes. So the judge ruled against the team. Uh, the Wolverines appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court. They lost there as well. And uh, one of the three justices did dissent and called Deppert's enterprise an obnoxious nuisance filled with perverse ingenuity. <laughs> that is a great phrase. If you have been accused of perverse ingenuity, then you know you've done something right. Mm -hmm. So Deppert finally uh, was defeated when the team moved. They closed the stadium in 1893. There's a lot more of, the, uh, more of this into the 1900s. Uh, there was uh, stands outside the uh, successor stadium, and the owner there responded in a Chicago Cubs-esque manner by buying up all the adjacent properties this was not in Chicago Cubs X fashion. He bought up all the adjacent properties, knocked down the stadium, and then rebuilt it in a like reoriented fashion out of concrete and steel so as to block any possibility that anyone could see from outside. Wow. That is perverse what's ingenuity. What's, what's Deppard's first name and how do you spell Deppard? It is John and it's yep. D-E-P-P-E-R-T. John oh, Deppard wow, Jr. Awesome. John Deppard. I love it. So, any any final comment? Um, I've been to Wrigley. I've been to Old Tiger Stadium. 
I paid my $8 to get in. That's the thing. You can get into these stadiums pretty cheaply. I had a friend who used to live at one of the places across from Wrigley, corporate event. It seems like the sort of thing where you have to keep like bungee jumping. You have to keep telling yourself, oh, I'm watching a Cubs game, not in the Cubs stadium. It's much better just to go inside the stadium. But It's further away. It's cold. It's but, a big flight of but stairs. But what about the perverse ingenuity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could dwell in the perverse ingenuity. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and listen in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Become a fan. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check us out at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.